living on earth with a divine nature. This is working our way through 2 Peter, part 10. The text today is, as we just take it in sequence, by the way, I'm, I'm a little bit croaky, but I'm not suffering, so if, as long as you don't mind the sound of my voice. 2 Peter 2, 4 through 9. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, so Peter, along with Jesus, Peter thinks of that as an actual historic event, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example, I think those are the important words, Right there. Making them an example of what is going to happen. So this is future tense. To the ungodly. And if you rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, whereas that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If, 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 then, so it's an argument that he's building, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Thinking of Lot. Thinking of Noah. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to and to keep the unrighteous under judgment, under punishment, sorry, until the, day of, until the day of judgment. Let's pray. It is quite a thing for us with all of our presets in terms of what we find acceptable and unacceptable. Our likes for certain ideas, our dislike for others our temperaments that take us in one way or another. It's quite a thing for us to come and take all of our minds and hearts and to set them before the adjudication of your word and to let God be sovereign and to speak and for us to be humble and to hear. We do love your word, all of it. Be with us as we study this challenging text today. In Jesus' name I pray, and the church said, <clears throat> it's such a relevant text, I think, for our particular time. Peter writes to a people who were uh, confident, enjoying God's love, the idea of his acceptance, but perhaps are on the edge of downplaying his wrath and judgment. Those attributes were felt to be maybe a bit beneath God. It's the common theology of many in the current anti-wrath movement where God's wrath is seen 
more as a natural outcome of sin than something resident in the character of God. So, so wrath is what happens when you reject God's love, you go the way of sin, and of course you're, you're, the wages of sin is death, life gets all messed up, and so that's wrath. And I'm not denying that we reap what we sow, but there's just no way you can bring that whole uh, idea as an explanation for the wrath of God in Scripture. It, it won't work. It isn't just something that happens when people reject God. It's something God does to people who reject God. If the words of the text mean anything at all. Our text launches with those two connecting words, for if. So it's based on something that he said a bit earlier. We'll look at that. In fact, there are four ifs in our text, followed by a then in verse 9. If this, if this, if that, and if that, then here's the conclusion. So it's an argument passage. That, to me, is significant because this is a text that designed, it's designed to make a point sort of unescapable. It's designed to make a point in an unescapable manner for people who might not be comfortable reaching the conclusion Peter wants them to reach, so he pulls them along. Verses 4 through 9, they're really an expansion of that last phrase in verse 3. That's what the and if part. The last part of verse 3 says, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Interesting. Peter is telling these churches not to question, not to question the future judgment of those who embrace false teaching. We looked at false teaching last week, the whole, the whole message. He says it matters. Don't question God's judgment on those who teach and those who accept what is contrary to his word. And the reason, the reason Peter has to say their con- condemnation from long ago isn't idle, it's not asleep. The reason he has to say that is because it looks like it is. Even in this world. People don't see the judgment of God happening right now. And that's why he says they mustn't think of God's judgment as being idle or asleep. It might look like it. It might feel like it at times. Even people can be emboldened in unrighteousness because You can still sleep well. You can still make a good income. You can have your retirement set up in a nice place in Florida. All that can be working well for you, even though you're under God's wrath. Because you don't see it all yet, Peter says. But there's another important issue, and it has to do with with how the church comes to think about false teaching in general. Um, Peter's doing everything in his power to, to... to prevent these Christians from adopting what might be a mild view of something that he sees as really serious and potentially eternally damning. We don't usually think of false beliefs as being punishable. We think of wicked actions being punishable. We understand that God judges bad deeds. We don't usually think of him as judging bad thinking. 
To our minds, bad deeds are deeds, but beliefs, well, they're just, they're just my values. They're my opinions. They're the way I look at things. And after all, aren't we all entitled to our own opinions? And how can God hold people accountable for wrong ideas? It just doesn't, it doesn't fit in really well with our age at all. But Peter's already addressed this subject in chapter 1, verse 4. Show you that. Chapter 1, verse 4. Talking about the word through which he has granted to us very precious, precious and great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of a divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So, so just holding on to the promises of God's Word, he says, taking them seriously, hearing them with faith, belief. It, it brings freedom from, he says it brings freedom from corruption. See that in there? Listening in the same way, in the same way listening to false teaching, it brings bondage to the lusts and the desires of our own hearts, our own inclinations. So there's a, a particular kind of false teaching that's highlighted here. There's, there's a kind of false teaching that replaces knowable, revealed doctrine with a tolerance of a relativistic outlook that makes divinely revealed moral absolutes appear somewhat offensive. Peter says, you look out for that. So I ask again. I asked this question last week. Answer it at least in your own mind. Answer this question with a yes or a no. Is God allowed to be morally offended by things that no longer offend us? Make yourself answer the question. Is God allowed to be morally offended by things that no longer offend us? us. And so we start to see the picture. We start to see why God holds us accountable for our rejection of revealed truth. Bad teaching and bad deeds go together. And Peter says God will passionately judge both. That whole concept of God as judge, it, it rings pretty archaic and foreign to our ears. And, and that's why, rather than just speculate about how will God judge one day in the future down the road, Peter doesn't go down the road, at least not directly. He goes back. He goes back to actual history. He says, I'm not asking you to accept something by faith here. I'm not asking you to accept something you learn in some catechism class. I'm asking you to look at what happened. Back into dealings with God, we can already see with certainty. And he picks out three specific cases of God's judgment, and then he tries to bring some application of that to the church. So again, God's judgment isn't idle, he says. It's not asleep. He wants us to keep it in the front of our minds. He wants us thinking about it. He says, let, let these actual case situations I'm reminding you of, let, let, it, let it at least modify the way you think about God. Never view God as being 
tolerant of sin. That's frequently the direction of false teaching. Not always. False teaching will always lead to either legalism that just harshly denies grace or tolerance that will marginalize holiness in the name of cultural acceptance. One of those directions. In Peter's case, these false teachers were turning the grace of God into what he calls, in the old King James, license. So they they projected an abused concept of grace that's nothing more than a, a ticket, a free ticket to continue following our own set of values. And Peter, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, says, you, you, you need to look at that. You need to look at that carefully. So, point number one. God judged the angels even though they were the highest creatures in his whole creation. 2 Peter 2.4 for if, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, Cast them. So this isn't just the, the wages of sin unfolding in their lives. Cast, throw, get, get that picture. Cast them into hell. Committed them. Who did the committing? God did. Committed them to gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. There's no missing the powerful, confronting edge in those words. He's kind of arguing from greater to lesser. We all know that the Bible says mankind was made a little lower than the heavenly beings or angels, Psalm 8.5. So at least in that sense, there's a, a shining glory to the angelic creation. Somehow they sinned. We don't know a lot about it. As far as we know, they sinned by listening to someone else. Lucifer. And for that, Peter says, God, God, cast them into hell. So God did the casting, and there really was a place. Peter's Peter's pretty careful here, the way he crafts his word to strike home a sharp point. Because we live in a day, we live in a day when almost nobody, even in the church, I don't mean this church, I mean the church, the 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 population believing in hell is diminishing. We live in a day when very few people, religious people included, really think God would cast anyone into hell for anything. I mean, that whole picture has been kind of wiped from our minds by a world that only subscribes to a God who is, who is embracing and tolerant of all creatures no matter what they happen to do. Tolerance equals godliness. You know how the mocking arguments go. You've heard them a thousand times. Certainly you're not saying God will send a person to hell for, and then there they put it, some one single bad deed. Is that what you believe, Pastor Don? You're not saying God would send a person to hell for visiting one pornographic website, not for telling one lie, not for cheating on one exam. Is that what you're saying? And of course, no. Not what I'm saying. We don't say God sends a person to hell just for doing this or that bad thing. 
You, you can craft words, you know. You can craft words like a lawyer, building a question in such a way that it gets the answer you want to find. Craftiness. And, and yet, you still have to come to terms with some pretty hard scriptural statements. A lot of people are going to hell. Jesus seems to imply many. I'm not making it up. This Jesus, the one we were just singing to with our hands raised and our eyes closed, what a wonderful person he is, how much we love him, the one true God, the one we all adore, right? Well, here's what he said. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are, see that word? For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are, there's that one. Few heading toward life, many heading toward destruction. So, so here's the question. How are they getting there, these people going to destruction? I mean, we have classes teaching people how to get to heaven, right? How do people go to hell? There aren't any classes. <laughs> Apparently, at least some people will end up there. How do they get there? Well, they do bad things, Pastor Don. Okay, how many? If, as in those cleverly phrased questions that I mentioned earlier, if the answer is that well, it's not one bad thing, then how many bad things? And how do you know when or where the line gets drawn? And is it really smart to dabble with too many bad things? How many bad things did Adam and Eve do? Of course, we should know better. We should know that people don't go to hell for doing bad things. Do we all understand that? People go to hell for rejecting Christ. The bad things have been taken care of on that cross. All the bad things. Nobody goes to hell for doing bad things. We better hope not. God's made provision, wonderful, loving provision for all the bad things, one bad thing or many bad things, a life filled with bad things like the thief on the cross. The truth is, God's made provision for all the bad things, all the sins. People are cast into hell for rejecting God's true message of his coming judgment on sin, and then they reject redemption and hope through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. And the main point in our text today is people will never come to Jesus. They will never humbly respond to the truth unless somehow they first believe that they're in serious peril without the truth. You'll only come to Jesus if you see yourself in danger of judgment. You'll only come to Jesus if you sense you need redeeming. And it was that very message of judgment that was being downplayed. Peter writes about it, and it's sorely lacking in the body of Christ today. And that's why here, with one verse, Peter speaks of the highest creatures ever created. By and large, they inhabit a realm of glory that's hidden from our eyes. 
but they listen to bad, to bad ideas. They listen to false words. They believed a lie and they departed from the truth. They had instincts that led them away from the moral base of the one who created them. Peter says, God cast them into hell. Point number two. God judged the world for not listening to the message of Noah. Peter just keeps moving on here. 2 Peter 2.5 And if he, who's this? Who is this he? It's God, yeah. And if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he, that's God again, right? He brought, the flood didn't just happen. It wasn't just something that happened. God did it. God brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So again, notice that active nature of divine wrath. Peter doesn't hesitate to say God brought that flood on the ungodly. It wasn't a natural event. These words would have served Peter's purpose very well indeed. He, he's already said that when false teachers arose, their message would be so tailored to the desires of the masses that 2 Peter 2.2, 2, he says many, many would follow them. Many would follow them. So, so it would be difficult to stay faithful to the truth when so many were turning away from it. That, that's the point. It's always the case, isn't it? Nothing makes error feel more acceptable than the endorsement of others. Nothing. It isn't just a logic thing, truth and error. It's a social thing. Ideas no longer accepted by most of the surrounding culture lose their credible weight. Social acceptance becomes the new moral baseline. And that's why Peter specifically mentions the account of Noah, to my mind. The angels, the greatest, can fall. Noah, it's, it's, it's a numbers thing. He, he deals with how many people were saved. He counts them. He's very careful to remind us that of all the people on the earth, only eight were faithful to revealed moral truth. Do you see his point there? They sure wouldn't have won any vote or polling. Only eight were faithful to revealed moral truth. Just a tiny percentage. And remember, Noah had to wait for the fulfillment of God's message of judgment for 120 years. It's a long time to build a boat. Everybody laughed. No one seemed to listen. Noah spoke truth. He told people. He warned people. Noah. Religious fanatic. But the people... The people weren't safe just because they were in the majority. Everybody see that? The people weren't safe just because they were in the majority. The crowd was mistaken... 
the whole world was judged except for eight people who listened to and believed and persisted in the truth with courage. Tiny percentage. Apparently, this, this story of Noah, it must be important for us to remember because both Peter and Jesus retold it a number of times. Remember Noah. What are we supposed to learn from Noah? Well, it's one of those very old accounts that kind of slaps current values in the face. The gospel message tells us that mankind will only find safety from the wrath of God in Jesus Christ, that there is no other way of escape, and most people don't believe that. At times, even voices in the church seem to question it. And then, Jesus and Peter say, well, remember Noah. Think about him. God had Noah build the ark. Out of all the inhabitants on earth, only eight people believed him. And God judged the rest. God judged the rest. So when you're tempted to think the surrounding culture must be right because it's the most dominant voice you're hearing everywhere you go, Jesus says, well, remember Noah. Point number three. There are specific acts of judgment that are left as warnings to the ungodly, and so they need to be preached by the church. He says that in verse 6. We just looked at 5. Now look at verse 6. Here's the third if. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example. That's, there's the money phrase of what is going to happen to the ungodly. There have to be some people, even in a service this morning, there have to be people here who are wondering why we would give all this attention to these dark passages of wrath and judgment and death. And why, do, why do we have to rehearse and proclaim the sternness of God from ages past? Well, Peter has an answer. Peter says, well, the reason you have to is God left them as warnings to, to people in Cedarview Community Church in 2019. That's why they're in the Bible. It's for you. It's for me. God doesn't want these lessons forgotten. There's a message here for the ungodly. Example. Leaving them as an example. Boy, it'd be a lot easier, wouldn't it? Never to speak of Sodom and Gomorrah. It would be more comfortable to not think of them at all. And yet, God says we're supposed to. We must. People are far more prone to forget about God's wrath than his love. Yet it's his wrath that makes his love precious. People will never cling to Jesus until they sense they are lost and heading to hell. They may come to Jesus to help them with a few problems. Come to Jesus, I, I, my marriage is in a mess. I've got this bad habit. Help me with my temper. They may come for assistance from time to time, but when the problem goes away or the need isn't as pressing, they'll forget about it. People need reminding God's moral standards aren't measured by my acceptance of them. 
They need to be reminded of God's judgment on sin. They need to be reminded about what comes after this life. They need to see the seriousness of coming judgment, even when everything seems fine in their earthly life. And for all those reasons, Peter says, God left an important road sign. He he gives us these examples to keep the ungodly from repeating the mistakes of history. That's why. It's his compassion. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah, just like the people in Noah's day, they didn't believe judgment would come. Do you see something happening over and over again here? They didn't believe God would ever act like that towards sinners. God says, I I left you some examples. These warnings are rooted in my mercy for you. We need these reminders because we don't always see God's judgment enacted immediately upon the commission of transgression. And that's why Peter says that the church should remember that God's judgment isn't sleeping or idle, that third verse. Don't become bold in copying the sins of others just because they look like they're getting away with it. There. That's a number one lesson to learn deeply, especially while you're still young. While you have so much of your walk with Jesus ahead of you, still being shaped and formed. And that's why when he talks about the angels and their sin in verse 4, Peter, Peter says that they are now, even now, kept for judgment. They still haven't received the full payment for their sins. Four, we're almost done. As surely as God knows how to punish the wicked, he knows how to preserve the righteous. It's in verses 7 through 9. Just taking these verses in sequence. And if he, if he rescued righteous Lot. By the way, how do, you know, how do you know Lot was righteous? He was sure greedy when he chose land. We know that. But here's, here's what Peter, here's what stands out when he describes Lot. His righteousness was revealed in a particular way. He was greatly distressed. He was distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. He he was tormenting his righteous soul over the deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment. You know what God looks for in righteous people? He looks for people who, compassionate as they can be, but they're tormented by the wickedness they see around them. They're not accommodating to it. They abhor what is evil. Romans 12. They cleave to what is good. Are you teaching your children to abhor what is evil, or are you teaching them to accept everything? Where are they going to learn what Peter's talking about? There are two pictures of divine rescue in this chapter. It's interesting to see the two of them. God saved Noah and his family out of the flood. God preserved Lot in the middle of it. Okay? Saves Noah out of it. Preserves Lot in the middle of it. 
And Peter outlines these two traits of character that bring the blessing and protection of God in the middle of a dark culture. First, Noah was a herald of righteousness. That fifth verse. There is something special about a guy that won't alter his message for 120 years. (laughs) Don't you think? There's something special about a guy with everybody laughing and no sign of what he's saying being true yet. He's just a broken record. And he won't budge. And he won't adapt. He just keeps proclaiming the truth. The second thing, says Lot kept his soul sensitive to the ugliness of sin. He was tormenting his righteous soul, verse 8. That's a beautiful thing. Tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds. Not just mean and angry and condemning. Whatever weaknesses there may have been in Lot's character, the text says he was tormented in his soul at the wickedness of people around him. That's always the mark of a good heart. How do you feel about the wickedness in this world? Peter says these godly people bleed inside. A lot of times people talk about bleeding hearts. Usually we mean it in a negative sense. I'm not sure that's a good move. I think in the truest sense, righteous people bleed because they're compassionate enough to want people to know the truth. Really compassionate people are deeply moved by suffering. Physical suffering, economic suffering, the suffering of violence, the suffering of indifference, but especially compassionate people bleed inwardly for eternal suffering. That's what they care about the most. Eternal suffering. There's a tragic downward spiral that's revealed in the Scriptures. Wicked people don't just do bad things. Paul says they they have a particular delight in helping others do bad things. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give... They give approval. Don't we love this? You'll be liked. You'll be accepted. You'll be embraced. You'll have a sympathetic ear. When people turn from the truth to practice sin, they almost always apply pressure to those who won't agree with them or won't follow them. And in today's world, that happens primarily through, through the media and all its different forms. Sin is made humorous. It's made trendy. That's how it grows. Lot, he would have none of it. So Peter says, Lot stayed true to his calling. He never abandoned the voice of God. Noah, rather, stayed true to his calling, never abandoned the voice of God. Lot never lost the inward sense of torture for sinful deeds. His his compassion for the lost was inflamed by his belief in divine judgment. Compassion is always so much deeper than just sympathy. Let me just close with a final word, not of judgment, but encouragement from this text. God knows how to keep you from falling. 
Do you see in the last part of this, that ninth verse where it says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. My exhortation to you would be, don't let the sins of others discourage you. Keep reaching out in love. You never know, you never know how God's grace can penetrate the hardest, most stubborn heart. But secondly, don't let the promotion of sin in others weaken your confidence in the truth. You'll hear it a million times. What makes you think you're right when everyone else is changing his or her mind? I'm so glad that God can do both things. Preserve the truth, reach the lost, and help the righteous to stand. Let's pray together.